Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hi, my name is Jeremy Lightman. Uh, welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. I'm here with Zul, the false god from the Ghostbusters movie. And uh, with us today, our guest is Mr. Timoth- uh, Pastor Timothy Flunker. Uh, and uh, welcome to the Thirsty Podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. So, Tim, you know, I serve with you as uh, your our Hispanic mission counselor. I'm our Southeast let's, Wisconsin. Let's be honest. Let's be honest, Michael. You are my boss. Okay. So everyone, get that out right in front. You are my boss. Yeah, I'm your boss, but I listen to you and Wayne as because <laughs> you guys are the ones with the expertise. Uh, supposedly, I'm your boss as the chairman of the Southeast Wisconsin District Mission Board. But what is your role? as a mission counselor? Because I'm going to guess that's a ministry most of our listeners have no idea what it is. I am the Consejero Nacional Ahora Hispano Hablante en los Estados Unidos. Roughly yep. translated. That'll, that'll help a lot. I know it well. I know it well. That's why, that's why I started that way, boss. Or <laughs> jefe. Um, uh, roughly translated, Hispanic Outreach Consultant for the Board for Home Missions, which essentially means two things. Number one, I don't have a parish. In other words, I'm not a parish pastor at this time. I don't have a Sunday or a Wednesday where I have to be every week. But as a consultant for the Board for Home Missions, I serve the entire synod north of the border because we work with Hispanics inside the United States. So um, congregations from Anchorage, Alaska to Miami, Florida, congregations from uh, Southern California and Arizona all the way up to New York City, and points in between, Washington, Colorado, Texas, Wisconsin, Illinois, Minnesota, Michigan, and Lord willing, opening a few more places here in the next uh, two to four years um, in places uh, like Minnesota and uh, Tennessee, only because the opportunity is incredible to do Hispanic outreach. Here's a quick fact. Roughly one out of every seven people in the United States is Hispanic. Roughly. Now, there are some concentrated places. Obviously, you go to Texas, <laughs> we'll be in the minority. Come to Wisconsin, okay, Hispanics are only 12 to 15% of the population. But across the 360 million or so residents in the United States, about one out of six is one out of six, one out of seven is Hispanic. So there's a lot of opportunity for us to do outreach. I consult so you, when you, with them. When you say uh, we're in the minority, are you talking about Anglos? Yes, in Texas, an Anglo is in the minority uh, for, for two reasons. Number one is just simply race. Um, there are far more Mexicans in, in uh, Mexicans, Hispanics, Costa Ricans, Guatemalans, you name it, in Texas than there are Anglos. And uh, the Hispanic population, primarily Mexicans and Central Americans, have been in Texas for 300 plus years. Uh, the white man, so to say, hasn't gotten to Texas except for about the last 200 years. So we're in a minority in two ways in Texas. And I served my first congregation out of the seminary in 93 was a congregation in northern Texas. So I, I got very familiar with the cultural panorama of Texas. How many of our Wells congregations have Hispanic ministry? There are 19 places that serve Hispanics with weekly worship in Spanish 
there are about a half a dozen places where there are bilingual men who serve with a Bible class, counseling, etc., but won't hold services in Spanish because the Hispanics are making the transition over to the English language. And then there are roughly, and, and truthfully, the number, it, it's like trying to stick jello onto the wall because about 120 or so congregations in the United States that are doing some kind of outreach that may include Hispanics. Uh, many of them live in transitioning neighborhoods, and so therefore they will offer an English class or an English improvement class or a help with citizenship or, or even an after-school care, and, and they'll have Hispanics in their midst. So all told about 140 or so congregations doing some kind of work with Hispanics actively that I'm aware of. There probably are also congregations in the wells that have Hispanics, and those Hispanics haven't spoken Spanish for two or three generations. They just happen to have the Hernandez or Rodriguez last name and their members, but no Spanish was used. And in many of those cases, the their culture is much more uh, a North American, perhaps even we would call Northern European, because they've been in that mix for so long, and they would they themselves would not necessarily have many of the cultural tendencies that a person who's been in the United States for 15 to 20 years who's Hispanic might have. Yeah, that, that last part that you said, that's probably some of the uh, people in our congregation, probably close to half a dozen of our members that they are Hispanic or biracial and their kids are even more so and none of them speak any Spanish, but they do have that last name and the, and the look and everything. But I, know I asked them to help with Spanish. So oh, yeah, pastor, I'm happy to help. I don't know any Spanish, but that's okay. That's a little bit of the misnomer since the Wisconsin Synod working with ethnic minorities has always assumed that, well, if you work in an ethnic minority, you have to use that ethnic minority's native language. For example, Hmong. But then they don't take into account the fact that the Hmong have been in the United States for less than 50 years. So they're only in their second, at the very, very remotest, their third generation. Hispanics have been in the United States, well, I mentioned before about Texas. We're talking conquistador time. We're talking middle 1500s, that, that the southern part of the United States, California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, uh, even go all the, all the way over to um, uh, Louisiana and Baton Rouge. Uh, th there is a long history of Hispanic presence. And their English is the language. I have a uh, couple of questions that uh, just kind of popped up right now. So I hope you're ready. We, we call them, uh, between Michael and myself, we call them curveballs. We like to throw each other curveballs when we want to mess each other up. Or, or, uh, gotcha, so or gotcha questions. Gotcha. Go. Yeah. Um, but it, it's going to take a little bit of lead up. So uh, brace yourself, because I first wanted to uh, just bring the perspective of you were talking about reaching the ethnicity in its uh, in their in their native uh, language. And uh, my first congregation that I served uh, is I, I get to be the have the distinct honor of being the last pastor to uh, do any preaching in German there. Uh, and they had a hundred year uh, run of uh, German services. 
um, but they didn't continue that after I left. And I think that was a, probably a good thing uh, because what essentially had happened is that there, there were really two congregations that I was serving. Uh, one was the English and the other was the German and uh, barely ever do the twain, do the twain meet. Um, and that has sort of given me some, uh, I, I don't know, it, it's made me wonder when we hear about a lot of these uh, bilingual or multicultural ministries, um, is there anything that is being proactively done to um, merge the, uh, you know, the Spanish-speaking ministries with uh, the English-speaking congregations? Not that they have to, you know, anybody has to give up anyone's identity, but it's really one body that we want to form. Uh, and I, I got to see it after a hundred years of them being served in their own languages. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, yes, I have plenty of thoughts on that. <laughs> uh, because for the last uh, 12 years, I've been doing this uh, position full time. And I've run into a lot of situations in the Spanish community, which was very similar to your, your, your German experience, where you had essentially two separate bodies. And maybe once a year, the paths would cross. We have approached it essentially in three ways. Number one, in our planning, as we program ourselves, as we look at the opportunities, I am very quick and constant to say up front, we're not creating a separate group. We recognize that there is a cultural difference. We recognize that initially there might be a language difference, but our goal from day one is essentially Ephesians 4. One Lord, one faith, one body, one spirit, one act. I mean, we're, we just constantly stress the word one. I have found that when I, when I approach a congregation that way from the beginning, certain stigmas are, are left aside. Oh, yes, there may be a few things that separate us, but there are a lot of things that bring us together. And let's accentuate those things that bring us together. So, so in a planning process, we, we intentionally identify we want to be one. Now, how do you put that plan into, into, into work? How do you work it? How, how do you get it into operation? Well, we, we do some very key things. We always try to get people involved with food because I haven't run into a German Lutheran or Hispanic that says, I don't want to eat. On the contrary, we love coming together for food. It's part of our culture, and it's traditionally a Hispanic culture as well. So let, let's go ahead and exchange some of our favorite fruit, foods. Let's, let's let somebody bring um, orange jello with carrots in them. I have no idea why. Let them bring it. And then let's have somebody over here bring some tamales. And I'll tell them, don't mix them. Keep them separate on your plate. But you got two different tastes. And everybody enjoys that. So I, I tell a new congregation diving into this, you want to plan at least four times during the year when you are purposely coming together over food. The third thing that we really programmatically look at is, is, is basically a, a default reality. The vast, vast, above 80% of Hispanic children don't speak Spanish. 
So it's very natural then for a congregation to say, look, I've got this Sunday school already going. I've got this VBS already going. Let's get the kids in there. And when the kids come together at that age and they grow up together, it's so much easier to keep the concept of one, of unity, because they become used to it. And when parents see their kids playing together, parents are more likely to engage each other. Now, that's the perfect world. Into all that, the devil throws some sin, and we got to work through that sin, and we got to overcome some racism, and we got to overcome some stubbornness. And um, but but we do we do intentionally promote and present a a oneness, even in areas of the United States that are overwhelmingly Spanish, Hispanic. And usually when they're overwhelmingly, it's not a bunch of nations. It's usually like, here's Mexico town or here's little Guatemala. When it's overwhelmingly, by the time those kids, their kids have been in the United States for three to four years, their Spanish is weak. They may talk to their parents. They may talk to their grandparents. But coming together with friends and other adults, those kids prefer English. So... I, I jokingly say we don't have the luxury of the synod to take 125 years to go from German to English. We essentially have 20 to 25 years of going from Spanish to English. And already two congregations that I have worked with for a long time, one of which I was um, uh, blessed to be a part of the initial work back in 2004, we no longer offer worships in Spanish because everyone has filtered into the English worship service, primarily because their kids all know English. They want to be with their friends and the kids just don't understand it. Even when myself and I, when I preach in Spanish, I try to keep it very, very simple. In other words, I'm not trying to use complex sentences. I'm not trying to make it flowery. I try to make it very simple, very direct. And then I'll ask the kids later, what'd you get out of it? And they'll just kind of look at me, well, I heard Jesus, <laughs> which I know every five-year-old answers every question that a pastor asks with the answer, Jesus. I get that. So it's a natural tendency. However, they, they, they don't react to the liturgy. They struggle to follow. Okay. So the congregation that I belong to in Green Bay, Wisconsin, we've morphed out of having Spanish worship services because those parents, those individuals we're contacting are coming to the English worship service. And that was a, I'll say it's about a 16 to 17 year um, endeavor of love to bring us to that point. So then, Tim, how can a congregation and pastors know if they should be examining Hispanic outreach in the community? You already answered the second question I was going to have is, what can they do to get the ministry started? You know, you, you got your three points. So then... You know, how do they know that if they should be doing this? And then what struggles, what challenges should they be ready for? I, I, I encourage pastors to get in touch with their local public school system and ask the superintendent. And sometimes this information is available online. What's your racial makeup? And if you have in a certain area, 15 to 30 percent Hispanic, you should consider Hispanic outreach. If you have over 30 or maybe even over 50% Hispanic, I tell them you should have already been doing Hispanic outreach. You may have accidentally missed a wave because if, if this public school system is that, that, that full, 
That means that there are a lot of families out there, a lot of people that are not being served with the gospel. So I tell congregations to look for a while there. People are telling me, oh, yeah, we've got Hispanics in our community. How do you know? I saw them at Walmart. Okay, what if it's a regional congregation once that said, yeah, I see all these Hispanics. I said, great, I'm going to come for a day. Let's see what it's all about. And I went there and realized, uh, yeah, this is a regional Walmart. They're coming from across the border, across the river, <laughs> from the neighboring state. They're not, they're not going to be part of, that, of a ministry there because they don't even live close to there. So, so seeing Hispanics in Walmart doesn't help me. However, if you do walk your neighborhood and you start to see the parks with Hispanic families in them, if you see uh, more than two or three uh, mom and pop grocery stores pop up, that, that to me tells me that you've got a Hispanic presence and it's, it's time to get serious about considering what it will take to reach out to Hispanics. And, and I'll just say it right now. The biggest caveat I run into is everyone says, I don't speak Spanish. And I have to remind them, about 80%, 75 to 80% of Hispanics in the United States don't speak Spanish either. <laughs> you can reach out to your neighbor. Now, you may simplify your English a little bit, or better yet, just understand their culture. Understand what, where, where they are after 30 years or 130 years of living in the United States. And, and knowing that culture will allow you to come in, become a friend, and present the gospel in a simple and clear way. And then with the struggle... I know I've heard you say, too, that an Anglo congregation should understand that they're going to be funding the majority of that Hispanic side of the congregation for a long time, just because Hispanics, I think, you know, know, they're not uh, trained to give, they're not trained to support the ministry, and it's just going to take a long time. And so the Anglos need to understand that. Is that right? If, if. If the issue about funding is, do we need a man who speaks Spanish? And generally, I'll tell a congregation, really, unless you've got 25% or more Hispanics who have been here five years or less, that's the only time I really start encouraging somebody who is bilingual to go there. Um, Because you'll probably will start out with some Spanish worship services. And that means you're adding manpower. You're talking about a, a, a budget package of between eighty and $100,000. Yes, then I'll tell a congregation, um, please do not believe or have the misconception that, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll start them. They'll come to worship and they'll give exactly like we give. Because culturally in the Catholic Church in Latin America, the, the concept of giving an offering either to God or even to the church, was not to pay for manpower or even building. That, that's that's the, the, the Holy See in Italy's problem. That's the Vatican's issue. When they raised money, it was for a destitute family in the congregation who uh, had an accident and someone needed to buy some crutches or a wheelchair. And then, then they'll raise money, and they can do that well. But supporting a, a property operations and manpower, that, that is actually something new to them. And, and admittedly, from my perspective, that's a cultural reality. Okay, so we'll dig back into the scriptures, we'll study the scriptures, and we will present God's law and gospel clearly as we can. And by the grace of God, over time, that will grow to the best of their ability. The, the other reality is that Often, 
new congregations reaching to Hispanics will uncover the segment of the population that is poorer. So, so maybe they are working in, in restaurants, cleaning hotels, or even they have their own business, but they, they, they're living month to month. Um, it, that, that means they don't have a large percentage, uh, or not, I'm oh, sorry, they don't have a large um, a bank account to draw from, even a percentage. And that, that means that it's going to take longer and ha you need more people in order to build up um, the requisite financial reality, not to bore you with numbers. In my opinion, it takes between tw 10 and 12 English-speaking American families to support the called worker. It takes between 35 and 50 Hispanic families to support a called worker. Just because of God's gifts, economic reality, and the longstanding tradition that giving was not something taught to them. Not sure. taught like to us when we were kids. Right. No, and I think that's an important point that I don't... I hadn't thought of, and probably a lot of people hadn't thought of either, is if they're coming from Mexico and so forth in the Catholic Church, like you said, they're not giving to support the church. The church there, the Catholic Church, they're going to be funding their own Catholic priest and their own ministry and so forth, whereas it's a different way, different model of ministry here in North America for us as Lutherans. Correct. So, and, and not just Lutherans, across the spectrum, um, the development of, of Christianity uh, north of the Rio Grande is quite different than the development of Christianity south of the Rio Grande. Sure. And, and I, I could spend a whole hour talking about that, but that's not what this podcast is all about, <laughs> so I'm not going to bore you. But because of those big differences, it, it's become a part of the 260 to 350-year history of the United States to have individuals support their local group. Um, in Latin America, the conquistadors came backed by the, uh, the Holy See and the Vatican, and then they pretty much um, took gold from the land, and that's how they supported themselves. The, the, the people giving was not part of the um, learned habit in Latin America and exists to this day. Jeremy, you got anything else, or you want to get into the gospel lesson? Oh, I've got a lot more, actually. Okay. <laughs> but uh, like you like he was saying, I don't know uh, if it's the purpose of the podcast or not. I, just off the top of my head, we don't have to dig deep into it, but uh, I'd be interested to hear more. Just anecdotally, in, in my personal life, I've noticed there kind of seems to be a pretty strong, for as much as um, uh, Hispanic cultures are uh, come from a, the Roman Catholic background, there seems to be a huge groundswell of um, Pentecostal Hispanic. Uh, like I've just seen, you know, church storefronts. And uh, actually, I had a, a student last year. I just talked to him today uh, as well that uh, his family comes from that kind of a background. And that, that seems to be gaining a lot of momentum. Very accurate observation. I would say that from uh, 1500 to 1900, the Catholic Church was the only version of Christianity that existed south of the border. I know there were some dabbles by the Missouri Synod in the late 1800s in Venezuela and Argentina, but that was not necessarily to 
the native population. It was more towards the Germans or gringos coming down and, 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 and living in those areas. Um, later on, it spread. In the last 120 years in Latin America, the, the evangelical movement, which is basically from charismatic to Calvinist, has, has exploded. So much so that in, in, in the early 60s, middle 60s, there were parts of Latin America where they would say, yeah, we're 97% Hispanic. Nowadays, 40, 50 years later, maybe it's only 60%, not Hispanic, sorry, Catholic. Now it's only 60% that's Catholic because of the explosion of Pentecostalism. The Catholic Church has been wrestling in Latin America, trying to stem the departure so much so that in some places in Latin America, you'll find Catholic churches that are very charismatic and mm. attempt to keep. But there, there is one, there's one cultural reality. The Catholic Church in Latin America is simply exists under a credo. And this is me observation. We're here. Come when you need us. Mm. The evangelical movement, and I'll include Lutheranism with that, the evangelical movement in Latin America, just like the United States says, no, we're going to go find you. The parable of the lost sheep, the, the, the shepherd looking for that sheep, is, is a, a, a mission mindset. The Catholic Church says, hey, we're here. You need us. You know where we are. Come and find us. And that then translates also in the United States. We'll have some Catholic parishes and large communities and, and I'll ask people, well, do you know who your priest is? No, they've just never availed themselves of that. And yet somebody knocks on their door, myself or a, a, a Pentecostal pastor, and they're taken back by the fact that someone's interested in them. Someone came looking for them. And they're much more likely to cling to that individual. Good observation. I, and also, actually, that's a great segue into our gospel because uh, this is, Palm Sunday, and uh, Jesus is the one who comes to us. We don't; He doesn't make us ascend to him or, or work our way to him. He, he's the one who comes riding in on the donkey. Um, but I also just wanted to touch on really quick, I, I had a classmate who was a vicar uh, in Latin America, and he commented on how um, there is a huge emphasis on Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday, the, like there's not there's crickets. I, I I will jokingly say that since the Catholic Church says, "Look, we're here, come and use us." Regular worship attendance is is not a part of the habit in a Latino mindset. In fact, most Latinos would say, "I go to church when I absolutely need." Oh, now he froze. Yeah, when when you need to, and we need to hear from him, and then he's he's frozen. He's in California, so uh, I don't know. I guess uh, everyone's frozen, except for me. So we're gonna not Christmas Day, and they know when he died. Everybody celebrates Good Friday, and yet when I was a missionary in Mexico, and I, I would routinely walk from my uh, rented house over to the church, about a mile and a half is a good exercise at 12,000 feet or no, 8,000 feet above sea level. You walk by churches on Good Friday, full to the guild, doors, they're standing in the doorway. 
You walk by churches on Easter Sunday morning, and you'd be lucky if the doors were even open. Nobody's there. Nobody's there. Because the message of the Catholic Church in Latin America is Jesus died. Now, if you're going to really imitate him, you're probably going to have to die eventually, too. And that's a, I, I, it's do, do a they have, do they have mass? Is, is there an Easter, is they have mass on Easter morning? I'm sure that there are Catholic masses for Easter on Sunday morning. They're just, instead of the nine that they have on Good Friday, they may have one on Easter Sunday morning. And that one is poorly attended and it's probably attended by those who go to mass every day, no matter what. They're, they're just their normal pattern. They just go to mass, sit through what they need to sit through, and then move on. Um, that, but no, it, it, there is mass, but it's... It can, can you say like 2% of those who attended on Good Friday go on, 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 on Easter? That seemed anecdotally to be what we're looking at when I was in Mexico City. All right. You ready, Jeremy? Sure. Uh, so you want me to read? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Luke 19. After Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem as he came near to Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples ahead saying, Go to the village ahead of you. When you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You will say this, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found things just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their robes on the colt and set Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their robes on the road. As he was approaching the slope of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He replied, I tell you, if these people would be silent, the stones would cry out. So, so Jeremy, where and how do you see Jesus' humility here? Because it's the theme for Palm Sunday this year is kind of our or his humility, our hope. So where do you see his humility here? My first instinct is to say it's kind of hard to see because he certainly is. He's not deflecting the attention um, he is he's making this procession. Uh, it's, it's sort of a parade. There's a huge crowd involved. And when uh, his opponents tell him to rebuke his disciples and, and quiet them down, he says, no, they can they can keep making noise. And um, and if they wouldn't, then the stones would cry out. Uh, but I, I kind of think. I don't know, it's. Um, it, a lot of times people go with the donkey thing. And actually, there, there was kind of a, a, not an uncommon thing for nobility to ride on a donkey. Um, you see that in other parts of the Bible. Uh, but I, I kind of think it, what is humility? Humility is 
not degrading yourself. It's thinking about other people more than yourself. And that's really what Jesus is doing here. He's thinking about the crowd and their faith and that this is good for their faith to, to see their leader riding in uh, victoriously like this. And uh, he's thinking about the, his enemies and how they need to hear the truth. Um, he's thinking about other people and uh, letting, you know, it wouldn't be helpful to anybody if he said, no, no, be quiet, don't praise me, because he is praiseworthy when he's done all these miracles and he's the savior. And then what you said too, I think most people would say the same thing you did, Jeremy, about the humility of riding a donkey as opposed to a stallion. And kings would ride stallions, but that was in times of war. So this is a time of peace, uh, saying that the enemy had been defeated. And you, you mentioned other places in scripture. I've got two of those. Second uh, Samuel 15, uh, after Absalom's conspiracy to make himself king, it says, after this, Absalom acquired for himself a chariot, horses, and 50 men to run in front of him. And then David, Absalom's father, his appointment of Solomon as king in 1 Kings chapter 1, uh, the king said to Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah son of Jehoiada, take your Lord's servants with you, have my, Solomon, have my son Solomon ride on my own mule and bring him down to the Gihon Spring. And so uh, although you and I and our people would often see the humility in the donkey, the people are picking up on the picture that uh, Jesus is portraying here of that he is riding a donkey because he's a conquering king riding into Jerusalem. Tim, you want to add anything to that about the humility? I, I would just simply add that the very fact that he's walking to Jerusalem shows humility, walking and then riding. Because if he weren't humble, he would have turned the other way. Why, why is he knowingly walking to his death? Why, why is he knowingly walking into a place, an area where he knows he's going to be ridiculed publicly, where he knows that people are going to lie about him? He knows that there's going to be a time when his disciples are going to abandon him. Look, if it was all about him, he wouldn't have set up camp in Jerusalem. He wouldn't be walking with everybody else now. Or he'd try to sneak in after the entire crowd disappeared. So no one sees him. No one's aware of it. So I believe that even though it sounds a little bit antithetical, there is the simple humility is, is that he is walking into Jerusalem knowing all of this. And so it's a unique combination of humility and power which is appropriate because in our Savior, we have a neat combination of God and man. So, Jeremy, why do the Pharisees object to the crowd's welcome? Because you know, they say at the end there, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Well, it, Jesus had no beauty or majesty that would draw us to himself. He looked as, as much like an ordinary guy as uh, any of us. And... Uh, when, when you look like an ordinary guy, if you're ignoring all the other evidence of his ministry, um, it, it would be blasphemy for the crowds to be using a, a name that is really reserved only for God, uh, the son of, you know, the son of David, uh, the, the great king. And, uh, and then we're calling that uh, a, of a sinful human 
uh, it, it looks by all outward appearances like this is blasphemy. So then, so then, Tim, uh, what does Jesus mean when he says, I tell you, if these people be silent, the stones would cry out. What's he trying to teach the Pharisees with that comment? The Son of God, which Jeremy clearly pointed out, that the Pharisees did not want Jesus to be the Son of God because that would completely ruin their concept of the Messiah. So they didn't want him to be the Son of God. But the Son of God is going to get praise from anything and everything. So if you're going to silence the voices, even those stones, even those mere palm branches, the trees they came from, what about the other animals? Somebody's going to praise the Son of God because he's worthy of that praise. So Jesus points to the most inanimate objects. And yeah, some people might say, but those are the very stones that could have killed him because he was blaspheming. Uh, look, no, I'm not going to go that far. But it's the most inanimate object around. And even the most inanimate object, humanly speaking, is going to praise the Son of God because this is truly the Son of God. Hey, I'm not going to point any fingers or anything, but is that scratching sound uh, somebody getting ready for a Sunday sermon? <laughs> I'm not preaching on Sunday, so it's got to be the only other guy. No, but well, I can see actually this for our listeners. I can see on video that you have your hands up in the air. I was talking about somebody else. <laughs> yeah, I turned my video off, and that's because of the weak Wi-Fi signal here. And yeah, I'm scribbling down furiously everything you guys are are saying so that everyone can hear it again in Bible study and my sermon. No, I'm. Do you, I'm, do you want I'm me to turn my video off? <laughs> no, I'm gonna I'm gonna be preaching on the epistle lesson this Sunday anyhow. So, uh, and getting into the epistle lesson with uh, just with the stones crying out, like Tim said, one way or another, God or Jesus is going to be praised, and you know that fits with the last couple of verses of the epistle lesson of Philippians two, starting with verse nine. Therefore, God also highly exalted Christ and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So yeah, one way or another, whether it's the children like we sing in one of the hymns, uh, whether it is uh, the people praising him with palm branches and Hosanna and Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, uh, words that automatically con connected him with, uh, with the Messiah. Uh, and whether the people, the Pharisees don't want to praise him or the stones praise him one way or another, whether it's Palm Sunday or especially on Judgment Day, Christ is going to get the praise that's coming to him. What other thoughts do you guys want to bring up on the Palm Sunday gospel lesson? Or just any thoughts on Palm Sunday at all? Nothing. One thing with the stones praising him is that uh, it was a couple of years ago I heard somebody make a, a good – I never heard that thing about the stones used to stone him, uh, but uh, I did hear um, on Good Friday when it said that the people came out of their tombs and the temple curtain was torn in two when Jesus died and the rocks split – and uh, the uh, individual was sort of drawing an analogy of um, that the stones it, it didn't that the stones did end up in a way uh, praising Jesus uh, when he when he gave up his life. 
Okay. Timmy, anything else <clears throat> on the gospel lesson? Nope. I think we covered it pretty well. Okay. Uh, Jeremy, you want to read the epistle lesson? Sure. Philippians 2. Indeed, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Though he was by nature God, he did not consider equality with God as a prize to be displayed, but he emptied himself by taking the nature of a servant. When he was born in human likeness and his appearance was like that of any other man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here, Paul tells the Christians in the city of Philippi to follow the example of Jesus, uh, to be as humble as he was. So then, Jeremy, explain the phrase to our listeners that he emptied himself by, oh, no, let's do this one first. He did not consider equality with God as a prize to be displayed. What does that mean? He did not consider equality with God as a prize to be displayed. So I mentioned uh, preaching in German before, and this one came up quite a lot because uh, it would be, it's the, you know, Palm Sunday epistle. Uh, so I, I still do remember um, that he did not, in German, it's, it's, it's kind of weird. He did not hold it to be a robbery is kind of the, the tra English translation of it. He did, Jesus did not consider it a robbery uh, that he was equal with God. And, and I think the idea behind that was, like we might say about a really good deal at a store that you, that you find, uh, this is a steal uh, that you're, um, that, wow, what a, what a great deal. And, and the idea is being that Jesus, when he was living on this earth, did not say, hey, what a great deal this is that I have all the power of God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let everybody know that I'm God. He was constantly telling people, don't tell anybody who I am. Uh, he, he, he did a lot of miracles that were big and showy, but he also did just as many miracles that he said, now don't, you know, keep this secret. Don't tell anybody about this uh, because the point was not that uh, Jesus is your sugar daddy or your bread king. Uh, he's, he's the savior from sin. And, uh, and so he, he used his God power, not for self promotion. Yeah. And the way I would answer that is, uh, you know, he did not consider equality with God as a prize to be grasped that you could, it could also mean something to be used for his own advantage or something to cling to. Uh, Jesus knew all the time that he was God. And yet in his state of humiliation, he didn't consider that equality with God as a prize to be displayed for his own personal advantage. Uh, you just said that, Jeremy, too, that uh, he didn't need to grasp at equality with God because he already had it. And I, thought th I think this is a good point that rather than grasping it, he's letting it go. Uh, he let go of it, that he had he could have had full use of his divinity all the time, and yet he let that go for the majority of his ministry and only revealed it uh, at certain times, like the Mount of Transfiguration. So, so then, Tim, what does Paul mean when he writes, 
he emptied himself by taking the nature of a servant. I, I think it's it's connected with what we've already been talking about, and this is the the um, inability of our human minds to grasp the full reality of what it means to be true God and true man. We, we, we will we will shudder to try to explain it because we've got no point of reference. All we know is man. But here is the Son of God who became man. Now, what does that mean? Quoting another famous Lutheran down the road. Um, yeah, he did not consider equality. If the whole purpose of Jesus coming to this earth was to be God, he would have never become man. He would have just popped up and said, okay, here I am, spirit, boom, 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 let's go. But no, he, he didn't consider that, so he became man. And by becoming a man, he emptied himself. He disvested himself of the full use of his divinity, and he disvested himself the full use of being a king. I mean, part of Palm Sunday is to recognize that Jesus is our king. Yet we don't often equate the word king with the word servant. But the whole point of Jesus's humility on earth, the whole point of his humanity is to take our place and to show us what a servant is like. And so he emptied himself. He didn't grab onto his divinity. He didn't grab onto his authority. He didn't grab onto his, his ability to make things his own. He said, look, I'm going to take whatever's coming in front of me. I empty myself and I become a servant. And, and as, as the thing says, even to the obedient to the point of death. I, I, we may be taken away from something discussing down the road, but I mean, we try to ask our kids to obey. But obedient to the point of death? I don't think any of our kids even concept that. I don't think most of us struggle to concept what it means to be obedient to the point of death. But that's why we have our Savior. Because he is the perfect example of what it means to be obedient to the point of death. Well, and, and that's and, a, go ahead. Well, that's an interesting phrase that you bring that up uh, because I've got four of our eighth graders that will be confirmed in a few weeks on May 1st. And that's what we ask them is, are you willing to be obedient to the point, point of death? You know, they, are you willing to suffer all? even death, rather than give up this faith in which you're being confirmed. And, you know, that's really tough for an eighth grader, because I talked to a couple of parents, uh, and, and I said, I don't know if this particular eighth grader is ready to be confirmed yet. And the parents didn't fight me on it or anything. I said, besides, you know, they're not ready to make this, but Lord willing, keep bringing them to, to church, show some commitment, you and your child, and then, Lord willing, in the high school years, you know, they'll, they'll understand and appreciate this and be willing to uh, make, that, make that vow before God and each other. Uh, I've got one of the students, you know, I got a couple of students, they are here every single Sunday. And then I've got one, uh, you know, she's only been able to come a handful of times, and that's usually with my wife bringing her uh, just because of the family dynamics. And that one, even though she's not here very often, you know, she has a lot of obstacles in her family. She has to go up against her mom. I mean, just even talking with grandma, who's a shut-in, and uh, she's and grandma said, "I don't know if mom's going to let her." And yet, 
you know, that's a big thing, you know, because we were trying to figure out around the dining room table, who's going to talk to mom? Should it be the pastor? Should it be grandma? Should it be the daughter? And the daughter stepped up and she wanted to do it. And mom led her. Well, that shows me, even though that child hasn't been very active in the church up to this point, although she is the one of our kids that always wears her water of life gear at school. So that's a good thing. And, and yet, you know, she is putting herself out there as a 13 year old. And that's, that's impressive. She, she may not grasp what it means to be obedient to the point of death, but she certainly understands what it means to be obedient to the point of death. Yeah. At least she's going against all those, all the, all those things in her life that are telling her, don't do this. And she's stepping up and saying, Nope, that's faith. Yeah. So Jeremy, why is this, why is this epistle lesson chosen for Palm Sunday? It is the same one that we we've always had, you know, 25 years in the ministry. I've preached this one. It's interesting. I think that with the new hymnal, they changed the old Testament lesson, which was always Zechariah nine, nine rejoice greatly daughter of Zion. Your King comes to you, a gentleman riding a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And now uh, the text is, uh, Isaiah chapter 42, but this epistle lesson is always connected with Matthew, Mark, and Luke on Palm Sunday. Why, why do you think that is? So, simply because of the, the humility aspect that we've been discussing all along. Uh, you, you mentioned the Zechariah passage, your King comes to you, uh, lowly, humble, and, um, uh, that's what's described in the in the Gospels. Uh, the neat thing about Palm Sunday is uh, that's the one. I, I think I have this right. All four. One of the few things all four Gospels have a record of. Um, and uh, uh, so so then you sort. It's sort of like the Catechism follow up to the Bible history narrative. You've got here's what happened. Uh, here are all the details of the historic account, and then uh, it, mentioning uh, Luther's catechism with the "What does this mean?" Uh, the Philippians two is kind of the "What does this mean?" Uh, what what does humility mean? Uh, Jesus emptied himself. I, that word "empty" always kind of sets off a little red flag for me. It, it I, I feel like I just want to make it clear it he didn't and nobody nobody here has said this at all so i'm not saying this to correct anything but um just that word emptied uh is did not mean he emptied himself of his of his divine nature he still was god he just as you've been saying all along both have been saying uh he did not make full and frequent use of his divine nature and uh I, and i'm just going to throw on one more thing uh, and that is, um, the verse starts with, let this attitude be in you. And there are way too many Christians or people who call themselves Christians around the world who emphasize Jesus as a role model, first and foremost. And so uh, that's a bad thing. But I do think that uh, let's not forget that there are times when the Bible tells us to imitate or to, to uh, follow the example of Jesus. And this is one of them. Let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And, and maybe just to put it very plainly, um, what Jesus did is 
even though he had certain powers, skills, and, and you could say rights, um, he did not make full and frequent use of them. In fact, he made very little use of them. And so sometimes, uh, even if you have the authority or the, the ability uh, or whatever it might be, just because you have power doesn't mean you have to use power. So then, Tim, looking at uh, verses 10 and 11 of this text, what's going to happen on the last day? How is uh, this, what Paul writes here in these closing verses of the epistle lesson, as Jeremy said, uh, those who put together the church here and the pericope, the lectionary, have chosen this because of its uh, humility. And yet, Paul doesn't end with humility. He ends with exaltation. So what's going to happen on the last day? Well, I could just quote the Bible and say, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But I suspect you're wanting me to dive in a little deeper, huh, Michael? Always. <laughs> exactly. And, and essentially, what is every tongue? Too often we connect the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord to believers. And yes, we've got the first Corinthian passage that says no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. But you know what? At end times, when our fates are already sealed, everyone's going to say, yep, that's God. Whether they believed it in life or not, they're going to have to say that's God. Because there will be no denying the reality. Nowadays, they want to deny the reality. Oh, Jesus was just a good teacher. He's really not God. Oh, Jesus, uh, uh, you know, the, the Gnostic issue from the 4th century. Yeah, he just uh, appeared like he was a man. He's only God. At that point in time, everyone will see Jesus exactly as he is. And he, those who are going close to him will say, Yay, Jesus is God! And they'll grab onto him. Those who are walking the other way, Yep, he was God. He is God. And they will have a sinking pit in their stomach because they didn't believe it while they were alive. And to that, that's one of the things I've been trying to teach people, because you're going to hear people uh, in our culture try to appropriate Jesus to their cause, whatever it is. Yep. You know, that Jesus was a liberal, Jesus was a conservative, Jesus was for LGBT or whatever. And then the question I'm teaching our people is, whoever is saying things like that, challenge them. What do you believe about Jesus? Do you accept that he was the son of God? And if you don't accept him as the son of God, it doesn't matter what you think anything else about Jesus, uh, because, you're, because your Jesus isn't the real Jesus. The real Jesus is the one who came in humility in the womb of a mother so that now he will be, or he is already and will be forever sitting on the throne in heaven. And if you don't believe that, your Jesus isn't the real Jesus. So just trying to and give some ammo to, our, to my people. And in today's world where everybody's truth is no longer objective but subjective, you're right, Michael. Everyone's trying to make Jesus up to be whom they want him to be. And Paul here says, you're not going to have a choice at that point. You're not going to be able to warp your picture of who Jesus is. You're going to have to say Jesus is Lord because there's going to be no denying it on that day. So the last question I have for you, Tim, and Jeremy may have some more, is let's, going back to your role as a mission counselor, how do we, 
And by we, I mean pastors, teachers, our people in our congregations. How do we humble ourselves to do outreach to other cultures so that we can then bring those other cultures to glorify Christ? I, I think there are several different ways that an individual can humble himself. Um, first of all, he can forget the fact that the gospel is only for Wells Lutherans who are born into Wells Lutheran families. And they can see that the gospel is for everybody, including those who do not have a Northern European Germanic Lutheran background, but that everybody needs to know Jesus so that they can confess Jesus as Lord now while the Holy Spirit works, faith, rather than later when they're confirmed as they're going to hell. So I, I think we first of all overcome our own sense of, call it entitlement, call it narrow perspective. No, Jesus is Lord for everybody. That's number one. Number two is probably just to overcome my own personal, and not by me as in every individual's own personal, but, but, but I'm not an evangelist. An evangelist is that guy over there who speaks well in public, or, or that guy who is serving his three years on a church council. He's the evangelist. I, I'm just happy going to church on Sunday. Um, I, I don't ever find a distinction in the Bible where Jesus says, blessed are those who are happy to go into church on Sunday. No, he, he, he puts the word of God into each and every one of our hearts, each and every one of our minds, and then each and every one of our mouths to be able to take advantage of whatever situation God puts in front of us to share the word, which means that it may be somebody that takes me a little bit out of my comfort zone. Maybe somebody to whom I need to clarify the gospel to, because their concept of Jesus is, is kind of a, a, a lesser wimpy son who didn't quite live up to the father's desire. And, and that's why he needed his mother Mary to kind of prod him on through life. Unfortunately, many Hispanics today look at Jesus and say, yeah, decent kid, not the best, kind of wimpy. And now I need to explain, no, Jesus is not a wimp. The dude is king. And here's the story that says he's king. But he's not a king that's going to beat you over the head with his scepter. He's a king who comes to you as a servant, a king who's willing to lift you up. And, and one of the ways I do that is I, I try as often as I can in longer conversations to bring King David into the picture. Because there's no doubt that King David is, is a, a foreshadowing of Christ. There was a guy who had a lot of power, a lot of authority, and yet he had to be humbled, and he acted in humility, and he was a king who wanted to lift people up. And our Savior as king also wants to lift people up. Well, and then Tuesday... I was out with a number of our teachers, our school chaplain, the other pastors, with uh, our Wisconsin Lutheran school students canvassing around our two campuses or our two Saw churches. Pictures, by the way, nicely yeah. done. Saw the pictures. Yep. And you know, to go with, I was with the uh, uh, four of the eight, uh, the first graders, and we were around our Water of Life Racine campus, and you know, the homes around here, they're smaller homes. Maybe in today's market, $120,000, $130,000 homes. And some of, the, some of the homes aren't that well cared for. Uh, downtown Racine, where some of our middle school students went, 
yeah, those are some even rougher neighborhoods. And yet I took uh, seven of our eighth graders up to the north side of Racine. <laughs> it was a it was a seven mile walk back and forth up there. Uh, and the kids were floored. They had never walked, driven up there or anything. You know, those are mansions up along the uh, along Lake Michigan, million, two million dollar homes. And the eighth graders, the boys were funny. At first they were so excited, they're running up to the doors. And then without me saying anything, they decided they were gonna walk up uh, like soldiers, uh, single file, hands behind them. They were bowing to give the flyer to one person. He was bowing to accept the flyer, to put it up on the door. Uh, it was both kind of awesome and creepy at the same time. <laughs> uh, but, and I just bring it up because that's Racine and we need to be ministering to everyone in between those uh, low income families where you might even have two or three families together, it might be broken sure. homes. And you've got the, the people on the far end of the spectrum that they're able to have a mansion that's worth $2 million because they all need to be humbled uh, so that Christ can be exalted. Uh, Jeremy, you got anything else you want to add to this? Uh, nothing comes to mind, really. All right. Tim, you got anything else you want to add? I would like to uh, offer my thanks for giving me the chance to participate with you guys today. It has truly been a humbling pleasure. <laughs> well, thank, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. Uh, so this is Pastor Zarling with our mission counselor, Tim Flunker, and Pastor Don't Hide Your Lightning Under a Basket. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs> <laughs>